Our scripture is going to come from 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as, the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for what, what is doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Good morning, everybody. I will try to keep my cool if we have a really pregnant pause. Um, I do not like, no one likes technology problems. If you are a member of this church, I dislike them more than most. Um, so what we're going to do today, we're, we're about halfway through um, 2022. And um, our church's annual theme of being a sent people has been explored uh, at length. We've done this in our preaching, in our teaching, uh, in our VBS, and uh, in other formats. And one of the things that should have become clear by, uh, by this time, if you've been here listening to um, our, our emphasis over the past six months or so, is that there are, are, are more than just two characters in the biblical plot. I think sometimes we kind of think it's God and me, or it's God and it's, you know, whoever's in, in an engagement with God and going to be saved or reject God. And really there's a third uh, character, if you want to just look at it broadly. God, His people, and then the world that He placed them in. In fact, humans are, de are defined vis-a-vis um, -vis the world. And that's the first thing said about humans in all the Bible, is that we're God's image bearers and we are to have a certain relationship with the world He made. Namely, we're to be uh, stewards of it, have dominion over it, its caregivers, and those kind of things. This comes out in Genesis 1, 26, 28, but then again, it's expanded even more in Genesis 2, and then sort of restarted after the flood. Uh, that, that commission to humanity vis-a-vis -vis creation is given again. Obviously, the crown of creation, the top of creation, its custodians, if you will, are the human beings that do uh, accept God's uh, definition of what it means to be and God's will for them. God sends His people out on a mission, which is His mission, and that mission is basically to redeem His world from sin, to renew His world from the death and destruction and chaos that sin brings into it. And that news of the redemption and renewal uh, that has been launched with the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ is called the good news in the New Testament. It's called the gospel. But as we take that gospel out into the world, we go into a world that doesn't always know it needs that gospel. Uh, it may misunderstand what passes for the gospel or Christianity. It may even overtly oppose it. The world of the first century, the world of Jesus and Paul and Peter, the author of the text that Phil just read for us, they live in a world that was like ours in this way. In fact, that's the context of this epistle, of this letter, 1 Peter. We're reading an excerpt here from 1 Peter 3. But really, the whole letter focuses on 
these Christians who are living in a part of the Roman Empire, be modern-day Turkey, and they are they are dealing with the potential of of, of uh, suffering for their faith. Uh, not uh, it's not evident that it's necessarily going to be physical, but there could at least be um, disapproval and uh, reviling and that sort of thing. Maybe even more. But he tells how to respond. All that's the whole context for this text that is on us uh, on, on our screen before us. And what he says for them to do, he urges his readers to embrace their responsibility to the world. And that is a responsibility, namely, to, there we go. All right. I don't know. Is it me? Probably me. Isn't it always? What's that? Yeah. That's how I'm holding my mouth, I think. Yeah. All right. Yeah, who knows? Um, I think part of it is the, the range. I noticed it was a big delay last, the other, last time. Okay, good. How y'all been? Larry loved flying, by the way. I asked him. Break. He's sold on it. All right, cool. Thank you so much. All right, notice that he says here in verse 15 all, that, that his readers, and by extension any disciples, so us, are to be always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Um, that's what we're going to focus on uh, today. This word, defense, comes from the Greek word apologia which your version may translate defense, it may translate answer, as in give an answer to anyone who asks. I don't know if anybody using a version that says answer instead of defense. That's a common translation as well. The word can mean plea, all right? Um, we get our English words like apologetics, which is the field of theology that deals with evidences and arguments for the truth of Christianity. Uh, an apologist of some belief or, or cause is a person who defends or explains that belief or cause. So we, we recognize that, that root word, I think, in some of our English words. And so what we're going to do over the next few lessons, we're starting a little mini-series today, is examine Peter's charge to always be prepared to make a defense for the gospel. I want, I want to consider with y'all over the next few weeks the question, are we prepared? Are we preparing? He says always be prepared. Are we? To what extent are we prepared? What are we doing about it if we're not? to explain why we believe what we believe. And to help us answer that question as a kind of preliminary foray into this topic, I want to consider with you this morning just very briefly three auxiliary questions. And the first of these is, when I open my mouth to defend the gospel, do I know my own story? Do I know my story? You know, when it comes to apologetics, to explaining or giving a reason for or an answer to or a defense of the gospel of our faith and really um, most of the things that humans do one of the most powerful things we can do is to tell tell the story it's not this particular proof or that particular proof or this proposition or this discovery it's the narrative arc of the bible and its power not only to ring true with most of the things that we experience in the world and in our own selves, um, but to capture the imagination 
and the heart of people. Stories have a way of doing that. Alistair McGrath was a, a, a former atheist who is now an Oxford University professor, a professor of the relationship between religion and science, and he writes a lot of stuff on apologetics. And uh, he says this about stories. We seem meant to tell stories. Human beings have a built-in narrative instinct as if we've been designed to use stories to remember our past, make sense of our present, and shape our future. To be human is to ask questions about who we are, why we're here, what life is all about, and most often we answer those questions using stories. Everybody does that, no matter whether you're Christian or not. The Christian meta-narrative, which just means the overarching big story, a lot of little stories in the Bible, but the big, you know, Genesis to Revelation story, offers an imaginatively compelling and intellectually rich vision of a new way of existence made possible through Jesus Christ. My question is, do we know the basic story well enough to explain it, to articulate it, to, uh, to that, that is a defense of the gospel. It may not instantly be like an intellectual headlock. I think sometimes that's the problem. That's what we want. Yes, you're right. Sometimes you do. it has to be like a good corrosive, a good acid. You know, it sort of generally dissolves these other stories that don't quite explain things and finally it dawns on people. That story I've been, that's been sort of gelling down in there, you know, um, marinating actually works better. And Peter says in verse 15 that we are to give a reason for the hope that is in us. The hope that is in us. Hope, in the language of First Peter, in the language of this letter, this biblical document, as its author makes clear at the outset of the letter, is the anticipation of a future imperishable inheritance, he calls it. Inheritance. Which originates from heaven, not from earth. And that's why it's imperishable, unlike everything else on earth. You know, this too will pass, this won't. Not this inheritance, because it's rooted and grounded in heaven. And it was introduced to humanity at the resurrection of Jesus. So if you go back to the very first paragraph of this letter, here's what he says. Blessed be the God and Father. This is chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. I want you to think about the word hope, this expectation of something coming in the future. It's not just a wish, it's an, a confident expectation. And what he's expecting is this eternal, imperishable inheritance. He's an heir of something. And he says we're heirs of something. And this idea of our being heirs in eternity is discussed throughout the New Testament. This shouldn't surprise us. This is all over the place. The, the New Testament is, is peppered with references to our inheritance. And it is connected to um, this idea of a whole new world that is coming. A new cosmic order that is sometimes referred to as the new heavens and new earth. And you can find this in the writings of Peter, in the writings of Paul, in the writings of the Apostle John, and in the statements of Jesus himself in the Gospels. So every major New Testament writer is talking about this coming new world where the people of God will be heirs of that world in some sense. So keep those two things in mind as we look at these. Just real quickly, I want to survey these, these, some of these passages in case you're not, um, if, if this isn't ringing a bell, it needs to for us to, to understand what this hope involves and, and, and entails. Jesus himself in Matthew 19, 28 
said this to his disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world, your version may say the regeneration in the margin or something like that. The ESV that I'm reading from has that in the margin because it's the idea of a new creation, right? It's an organic metaphor. Something is being born all over. In that new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. So human beings, in this case the 12 disciples, are going to sit on thrones. They're going to be involved in what Jesus is involved in. Remember, Jesus is the King of Kings, right? He's the ultimate one sitting on the throne. We, we just read it, 2 Samuel 7, the throne of David. The, the, the one kingdom that will never pass away. Guess what? You're also sitting on thrones if you're a child of God in the new heavens and new earth, the, the new order that's coming, the new world as Jesus calls it. John's writings in Revelation 21, he says he saw in his vision uh, the consummation of everything, a new heaven and new earth, Revelation 21. For the first heaven and earth had passed away, the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Behold, the dwelling place or the tabernacle of God is finally with human beings, he says. In this new heavens, new, new, new earth, this new world that Jesus talked about. But look what he says over in Revelation 22.5. as this picture, this vision of the new heavens, new earth continues. He says there, there will no longer be night. Imagine that. Night will be no more, Revelation 22.5. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And notice this, they will reign forever and ever. Who reigns? People who sit on thrones. In the new heavens, new earth, just like Jesus said in the new world, the people of God are going to be reigning with him. In Paul's writings, there are many that we could go to. I'll turn to uh, Romans 8 here in a second. But what he says is that we are all fellow heirs with Christ. As he reigns over all, we reign with him. We are headed for a future of glory. Even though in the present creation, this present world, this present order, it often feels like our lives are more suffering than they are glory, right? Anybody relate? Physical pain, disease, death, anxiety, social conflict, political conflict, um, you know, family strife, on and on, our own failures. It feels like suffering. He says glory's coming. But I want you to notice something. He says something radically new is going to happen when this transition occurs. And it's going to happen to creation as well as to the sons and daughters of redemption. So in Romans 8, the Spirit Himself bears witness, verse 16, with our spirit that we're children of God. And if we're children, we're heirs of God. We're no longer slaves who, who relate to God vis-a-vis -vis fear or through fear. We relate as heirs relate with an Abba Father relationship of intimate love. Provided we suffer with Him in, the order, in, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. There's that suffering versus glorification contrast. Then in verse 18, I consider, he says, the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Creation. Why does he toggle all of a sudden to the creation when he's talking about us? Because our inheritance is based on something that's going to happen cosmically to the whole creation. It is groaning, but a day is coming when the revealing of the sons of God happen. And verse 21 says, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All right, that's a quick survey to remind us what Peter is probably talking about when he says we ought to be able to explain, give a reason for this hope that is an inheritance that is imperishable, 
rooted in what Jesus did at Calvary. In fact, in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, he refers to the eternal life as new heavens, new earth. But according, this is 2 Peter chapter 3, according to God's promise, all through the Old Testament, especially the prophet Isaiah, we are waiting for a new heavens, new earth in which righteousness dwells. All right? So this has got to be part of our story. Do we, how can I talk to somebody else about the reason for my hope if I can't even tell my own story? Which is the story of the Bible. That, praise God, He's added me to, you know. Um, as Peter's indicating here, what we believe about the future shapes us in the present. Um, very next verse. Therefore, since we're waiting on a new heavens and new earth, be diligent when? Now. Like your life now in the present ought to change because of what you believe about the coming future. Can you understand chapter 3 in a novel if you're going to ignore the conclusion? You may think you do. You ever watched a movie or read a book and the ending changed how you saw the whole thing leading up to it? I'd say every time that would, if it's well done, there's plenty that aren't. Doesn't even matter. You don't care anyway. You've lost interest 30 minutes in, right? But when it's a good one, you know that the conclusion changes and shapes and, and, and colors the meaning of the middle. And that's what Peter's saying. Since the new heavens and new earth are coming, how should we live now? Well, he says people ought to see that we're without spot. We're aspiring to moral excellence. We're not perfect. We're not there, but we're, that's our goal. We admit failure when we don't get there, at least. And we're at peace. There's a mental peace that we have by virtue that, that, that is not common. And all of that present day change morally in terms of our psychological and spiritual condition, our mental health, all of those things, those are related to what is coming. So I'll just get a side note, a side note here. Um, today Stephen Beard uh, didn't talk about the, uh, in our family of Bible education, sometimes we'll, we'll flash up the, the timeline. Um, and I just want to make a note about that. I've been talking with Amanda and, and Randy Fox about it. We kind of are missing the last part. I've been stewing on me. for. I don't want to be quibbler or pedantic. People are doing great. The, the graphic design is great. The scheme was great. Everybody who's done family education has done a great job. I'm not trying to criticize it, so I hesitated to even bring this up. But it goes from the leaf, which is creation. What's the last thing in our timeline right now? That's not the last thing in the story, though. It's the last thing for us right now, but the people of God, the church, who are new creation, according to 2 Corinthians 5, if you're in Christ, new creation started, but it kind of truncates it without new creation, the consummation of everything, the new heavens and new earth. So we're going to add another leaf at the end that looks just like the first leaf, only it's going to be green, like the curse is no longer. Because Revelation 21, 22 describes the new heavens and new earth just like Eden, except for the curse is no longer, to use John's. So get ready for that. It may sound unimportant, but that's kind of Peter's logic here. Because of what's coming, you're a different kind of church right now. The future, the end, the conclusion affects the middle, the present. All right? But if we don't know our story, 
If I don't know that I'm a participant in God's grand narrative stretching from creation to new creation, and I'm, I'm now a character written into that plot, and written, the ink is the very blood of Christ that writes me into that story. If I don't know that, and I just got a few little tidbits memorized from the Bible, cherry-picked propositions, proof text here and there, I don't really know the story, and that's not going to be as compelling. And my life probably won't look as different as it should, and it won't even provoke any questions to give an answer about. Peter says, be ready to explain to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. And that reason has very much to do with us knowing our story. Okay? Secondly, do I know who's asking? If I'm going to prepare a defense of the gospel, if I'm going to communicate that to somebody else, what do I know about the person who's asking? Responsibility to get to know well, look at 1 Peter 3.15. He says, I want you to make a defense to anyone who asks you. Anyone asks. No qualifications. No modifiers, right? Anyone and everyone is the implication. This is wide open. You tell me, does the word anyone... That umbrella term to describe humanity, anyone, does that include any diversity at all? Everybody that's anyone exactly homogeneously identical? No. These two married people aren't identical. These two sisters aren't identical, right? Nobody in this church is identical. Not, not to mention people out there who are maybe unchurched or unbelieving or from another country or speak a different language or we have all sorts of temperaments. I mean, the, the, the kinds of diversity that we have are endless, the stories from our past, the baggage we carry, the traumas we've suffered. We all have different stories on one level. And yet Peter says, I want you to be ready to make a defense, to give a reason to anyone who asks you. Whether they're old or young, extroverted or introverted, ignorant or learned, churched or Church, whether they're from north or south or east or west or beyond our shores altogether, you be ready to give a reason, to give a defense, to explain it to anyone who asks. One of the most fundamental rules of communication is to know your audience, right? The best communicators have some idea of the people on the other side of what they're transmitting. If the goal is to transmit something, we've simply got to use a frequency that the people on the other side are able to tune into. It doesn't help to you know, broadcast on a frequency that people's devices don't tune in. I'm using a radio analogy. <laughs> Everybody under, under 45 you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, if they can't get the website, you know, you know for whatever reason, then you doing just a killer bang up job of communicating on a website they can't access, that's a problem. If you're speaking English and they speak Russian, you get the analogy. You, we, we've got to know our audience, by definition, I would argue, to communicate well. Communicate means to share. An idea or thought or sentiment, something is being now made common that was in one brain and heart, now it's in another brain and heart or several. How? Because you've successfully transmitted in a way that they're able to understand. 
Don't we expect this all the time in everyday life? Professionally? How many of you had the experience, I'm sure Daniel has never been on the other end of this, the doctor, but most of us had the experience of listening to the doctor tell us or, you know, about our condition or our loved one's condition, and when you leave, you're like, say what? You know, there's, it's, it's, a, it's an art to know all that science and jargon and yet translate that to somebody who's never spent 10 seconds reading that, who's also fraught with emotion right then and can't even listen anyway. I mean, doctors earn their pay just from trying to do that, in my opinion. That's hard, I would imagine. But we expect it. Like, it's on them. He didn't even, he didn't, he, I couldn't even understand the guy. Well, go to med school 10 years. It's not his fault the human body's so complicated. You're lucky some doctors probably can get anything across. Go into that, you know, mind shaft for, you know, the better part of your life and then come out and tell people who've never spent any time. That's tough. Guess what? They got a responsibility to, right? You're taught that. There's part of medical school curricula, I would guess, where you're learning that kind of thing. If you can't communicate because you don't know the people on the other side and their limitations or their gifts or their language, so to speak, then, uh, you know, what's the point? Personally, we, we do this. When we're raising kids, how many of you have taken a complex topic that your kid needs to know, an area of life that they need to understand, and what you first tell them when they're four years old or five years old and they're asking questions borders on dishonest? Huh? You get 10, 12, 13, 14, you're nuancing it a little bit. When they're 30, you can talk about, you know, biology class or whatever. And there's a many, many different topics we might do this. Each of these retellings are because they're changing and they're at different developmental stages and it's a different audience, you might say. And yet sometimes what we call sharing the gospel can be worded in such insider language. We've done so little thought about who's on the other side of our communication that a non-Christian has trouble grasping it. Now, I would argue that, that is increasingly the case as we go forward in a, you know, people deconstructing their faith, and we're in the internet age. Cat's out of the bag. You know, the old days of, of 100 people listening just to, to a country preacher talk about things, and they're all just, whatever he says, that's it. That's over. It's Google.com as, as you're talking. I, I teach sometimes in, in you know, classes, and um, you can just see the student who's not done any of their work Google. Well, actually... Actually, F. Just kidding. I don't do that. I really don't do that. It's annoying, though, because Google has everything. You know, sidebar, if you get 500 million hits of data, you have kind of nothing. You're where you were, right? Um, anyway, um, it's all about the search. We've got to be people who are willing to step up and do the work of knowing the anyone that we're talking to. Uh, a little commentary on 1 Peter that I've been reading this week. Uh, Karen Jobes is the author. She says this about this problem. Talking about this verse, 1 Peter 3.15, kind of the signature verse of this mini-series we're, we're starting today. She says, this verse raises the question of how many Christians today could make an articulate statement of the reasons for their faith in Christ in terms that would be understood by modern society. Most Testimonies, quote-unquote, when given at all, are given in a Christian gathering using the jargon of the church, which makes perfect sense to the converted, but in terms that have little meaning for those who are not already believers. You know, throwing out atonement and justification and sanctification. They're like, what? According to Peter, 
Believers must be able to relate the Christian faith to unbelievers by addressing their questions in terms they find meaningful. Read how the Apostle Paul presents the gospel at Mars Hill. He basically takes a pagan poem, it looks very likely that he takes the po- uh, a hymn to Zeus, a Stoic poem, and just sort of, um, I don't know, occupies it, almost like a good parasite, and gets them going along with it. You know, the unknown God, remember that? That's what I'm talking about. And then at the end, it's like, whoop, Jesus, resurrection. Boom, had you already. You know, it's a subversive move. It's not a, you say that, it's all false. Here's the truth, let's go to combat. That's not usually what people do in the Bible. I think Daniel, I mean, uh, Nick is going to talk about Daniel a little bit, maybe. Uh, I'm not going to steal his thunder, but keep that in mind. How Daniel responds to Babylonian pagan ideas when he's taken captive and trying to influence them for good. So we've got to be people who know who's asking. Um, and, And while the gospel certainly has... I don't want to undersell this. The gospel certainly has universal uh, resonance. It has universal uh, application. Um, How we share it is not a one-size-fits-all proposition. It requires flexibility on our part. Peter's asking his his readers to, to be nimble. To go to people where they are. And if I'm going to go to somebody where they are, does that not imply necessarily that I need to know something of where they are? Let me suggest, suggest to you that it's more like building a bridge than firing off a Facebook post or uploading a blog. It's more like building a bridge in, in the sense that with building a bridge, no connection can be made without understanding the other bank that you're trying to reach, right? So engineers come in and surveyors and you're looking at its structure, its geology, its angles, how it's made, what what is it made of? Before you just, let's just build a bridge. And I think, you know, a Facebook post is this unidirectional kind of just launch that is going out to nameless, faceless, often other, the other, whatever that is. And you don't have to do much work. You just let your flame go and go to bed. Building a bridge is much more complicated. Um, It takes work. It takes love. It takes a lot of listening. So, and that's kind of my point, before we open our mouths, we should have already been opening our ears for a long time. In fact, that ought to be a way of life for people who love their neighbors as themselves. A whole lot of listening. We need to know where they are if we want to have any prayer of, of, of helping them come to where they need to be. All right, when it comes to that person, now thirdly, that I'm going to be defending the gospel to, really briefly on this third point, this is a very asymmetrical lesson, I, I want us to think about one more thing, and, and one more question, and that is, uh, I'm going to skip this for now, that's the Apostle Paul saying, I, I became all things to all men. Um, do I know my own heart? I need to know my story. I need to know who's asking. I need to know myself as well. Namely, I need to know what my true motivations are. I have to ask, what is my true motivation here in engaging this person who doesn't appreciate my faith, who may misunderstand it, who may be maligning it actively? What is my motivation in talking to them? 
And here I'm drawing on the, the, the qualifying phrase from Peter's pen, 1 Peter 3.15. Yes, yes, he wants us to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us. But then he says this, yet do it with gentleness and respect. A lot of times when people are in some sort of disagreement, the first thing that goes out the window is basic respect. Christians routinely dehumanize the people that they think they're defending the gospel to. Treat them like just a, somebody that just has no feelings, no emotion, no, they can just obliterate them in ways that Jesus would have never done. Do we respect the humanity of people we disagree with, who, of people that we, we maybe fear, who make, make us anxious, anxious who, who are creating resentment in us? Do we still, are we able to remember that they were made in the image of God 100% as much as we were? And that God has not stopped loving them one bit. They may be in trouble, they may be going the wrong way, but if the Bible means anything, he's still pursuing them. He still loves them. Do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness. Gentleness is the idea of mildness. Even humility. Some versions translate this humility. But it's the idea that you're not rash and like trigger happy, ready to go off on somebody that disagrees with you. But, but there is a, a mildness there. A gentleness. A longer fuse, not a shorter fuse. And I think the fact that Peter has to issue this caveat, yet with gentleness and respect, must mean that defending the gospel in this way is not necessarily the default mode for human beings. This is a learned behavior, not something we're born with. It's certainly not the default mode in our present culture, our present political climate, anyone? Do you feel like there's a lot of gentleness and respect out there? What are the opposites of those two words? One reason for this, one reason we have to observe and respect this caveat, it's certainly not the only reason, I'll grant you that. We'll talk about some of that stuff later, but one reason for this is that all sorts of deeper, if we're honest, all sorts of deeper motivation, uh, some of these known to us, some of them perhaps unknown, even to their possessors, but these deeper motivations can lie behind the urge to defend the gospel. They can be what's animating our answer to those who would criticize it or misconstrue it. What are some of those deeper motivations which are a little more untoward? How about vindictiveness? How about resentment? How about envy? We used to have the public square. Now our percentage is going down and they're, they're becoming, that's what I see on TV. How about pride? How about anxiety? How about fear? Those are natural reactions maybe. But I want to say something. None of those were the motivations that led Jesus Christ to incarnate himself as a human being. Not one of them. None of those led to Calvary. And none of those will cause us to lie down even an hour or two of investment in somebody with whom we disagree, much less lie, uh, lay down our life for them. 
The fact is a defense of the gospel can emanate both from a heart of love and also from a heart of loathing. Maybe we're just being defensive. The latter heart, the loathing heart, will often reveal itself in the throes of debate, though, when it begins to treat the other person with coldness rather than gentleness or scorn rather than respect. No time for their perspective. Right? I have nothing to hear or learn. I don't even want to learn about you and where you're coming from and why this isn't computing. I just want to slam dunk some information down your throat and, and then I'm done. Do we think we're, are we absolving our, you know, self of, our, of guilty feelings or is it help us with our conscience? Because it's not very Christ-like to do that. This is a person, a being, who was the eternal Lagos. I mean, how far did he travel to come to this? Or does far even make sense? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we might see the glory of God. God so loved His Son that He gave Him that we may not perish but have everlasting life. Our evangelism needs to reflect that attitude as well as the truth of what we're conveying. Because love is part and parcel of the gospel. I think sometimes when well, we get the gospel, we have truth, right? We got truth, doctrine. Then there's love over here, and that guy keeps preaching love. Let me tell you something. There's no doctrine, more no, no thing more central to the, the truth of, of Christ, no doctrine that is more weighty, honestly, than love. When people say that, they just reveal they haven't grasped love yet. They haven't let it argue with them and demand things of them they could never imagine. And they probably don't grasp how great God's love was for them because they probably haven't yet grasped how sinful they are. And I think that's why the New Testament always starts there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Right. You were dead, right? Not just, you know, you're in the water struggling, and so, you know, God throws you a life raft, and you have to grab it. Half God, half you. Instead, it was your stone cold dead. Remember I quoted this recently? Stone cold dead at the bottom of the ocean, and God makes you alive. Language of Ephesians 2. We were dead, but he made us alive together with Christ. You gotta let him do that, of course. You can reject it. So that's love. Does that sound like a lightweight little edge of the doctrine of Christ? No, that's the heart of it. It's part and parcel of it. We may think we're defending the faith, but Paul says we haven't truly grasped the faith if we don't have love. I mean, isn't that the point in 1 Corinthians? He says, I have all faith, you know, truth, knowledge. So it's to remove mountains, but I have not love. I am nothing. And here are some traits of love. Think about this as we think about engaging with somebody who doesn't know Christ, who doesn't believe the gospel, who doesn't even find it relevant, who might find it off-putting, who maybe is operating with any number of misconceptions about what it is because it's been so mongrelized with so many social, cultural, and political things, they can't even see straight. We're dealing with all that plus their own trauma. It's called humans. It's called broken people. But that's work, right? A lot easier. Here's a tract. Well, let me just shh, open the top of your head so I can pour some stuff in there. And we, that, that's not how it works. Here's what it looks like. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It is not irritable or resentful. Truth, when wielded without love, 
can be just another weapon. Truth, when wielded without love, can be just another run-of-the-mill weapon. It can be used to serve ourselves rather than our neighbors. Even if the service it's rendering to self is just some sort of, you know, expiation of our guilt or something like that. Is it really about loving that person? And I, I think that's why Peter says we need to examine our hearts. Knowing ourselves, knowing our true motivation, knowing my own heart is very much a part of being prepared to defend the gospel. Look what he says in verse 16. Don't know why that's not working, but verse 16 he says, having a good, it's all right, I'm, I'm well the song, get to the song. Verse 16 says, having a good conscience. Um, Daniel will flash it up here in a second. And so that's a, a, an invitation or a charge even, stronger than just an invitation, that we are always doing some introspection as we think about he, He's saying this in the context of, of our relationship with other people, right? Make a defense toward outsiders. People who are asking you who don't have the faith, who are asking about the reason for your hope. Tell me your story. Why are you like that? Right? Why do you have such, you and your people, like they're aspiring to moral excellence. It's really beautiful. And you have this peace about you. Why are you like that? Isn't it interesting that one of the main things Peter says that we need to do is we need to have a good conscience as we do it. And I don't think that's unconnected from this idea of why we're doing it. Illness or lack thereof and the respect for others or lack thereof comes in. All right. So um, next time, uh, Lord willing, next Sunday, we're going to continue on with this idea of giving an answer or a defense for the gospel, particularly next week, uh, which is July 4th weekend, when our, our nation is thinking about its own history and its own identity and, and, you know, the blessings and the challenges of being Americans. And we are most of us here, I think, if not everyone, uh, the ladies sort of quasi now, um, American Christians. Um, we're going to think about this, this in connection with the question of our relationship to our nation, to our society. And this is where the stuff about exiles will, will come in. So Nick will be doing that on Wednesday night, too. We did not coordinate that. So maybe that's in God's providence or horrible minds think alike. One of the, one of the I don't know which. All right. Thank you for your attention. Um, if you are here today and um, are intrigued by the story of Christianity, that... that the, the, the life force of the universe, the logos, this old Greek word, actually became a human being, entered creation to begin to renew and remake creation. And his death paid the price for our sins. His resurrection um, was sort of a foretaste, the first fruits of a resurrection, not only of, of, of God's people, but of all the world uh, in, a, in a, a, a paradise without sin where we can do what God designed us to do. If you want some of that and want to talk about it, study about it, uh, if you'd like to become a Christian today, we are stand ready to help you in any way that we can. While together we stand and sing.